Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Good afternoon. Thanks for coming. Uh, my name is Peter Thompson. I'm the environment editor at the public radio program, The World, produced here in Boston at WGBH. Uh, we'll be talking today about chemical exposures in the and the brain, the Flint water crisis and more, or as we promoted it on our website, this is your brain on lead and other nasty stuff. Uh, we have a distinguished panel this afternoon of uh, experts from Harvard School of Public Health and other institutions around town and uh, the federal <laughs> government in Washington. Philippe Grandjean is an adjunct professor of environmental health at uh, the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Jeffrey Griffiths, second to my right, is professor of public health and community medicine at Tufts University School of Medicine. He's also the former chair of the U.S. EPA Drinking Water, Drinking Water Committee Science Advisory Board. To his right, Mark Weiskopf, Associate Professor of Environmental and Occupational Epidemiology here at the Chan School, and Kimberly Gray, who'll be joining us from Washington via video link. She's the Program Director of the Children's Environmental Health Program at National Institutes of Environmental Health Sciences. Uh, the program will run for about 45 minutes, then we'll have a brief Q&A at the end. You can also email questions to us for those of you online at theforum at hsph.harvard.edu. Uh, you can also participate right now in a live chat discussion that's happening on the forum website. Um, we're here to discuss what happens to people's health, particularly children's health, when they're exposed to unhealthy levels of chemicals in their drinking water, their food, and the environment. The topic has taken on a profound resonance with the news that residents of Flint, Michigan, including thousands of children, have been exposed to unsafe levels of lead in their drinking water amid allegations that authorities were initially dismissive of their concerns. It's getting, obviously, a lot of press around the world, and it's exposing sort of a, a hidden um, area of public health concern that uh, Nicholas Kristof, in particular at the Times, has been writing about a lot recently. If you're looking for a good primer, just look at Are You a Toxic Waste Disposal Site from the Sunday Times. Um, anyway, I just want to start right off turning to Philippe. Give us the context to start. What happened in Flint? How does that situation relate to chemicals in our environment and their impact on the brain? Well, in a way, it's, it's surprising it suddenly would happen in Flint because this could have happened in just about any community in this country because we have used lead for water pipes since the 1800s. And we've used lead for soldering, for you know, uh, putting uh, water contents together. And there's lead all over in our water distribution system. That was a cheap, malleable metal that was very easy to use for this purpose. That's why we did it way, way up into the 1900s. So there's lead piping all over in this country. What happened in Flint was that they changed the water supply. So they got uh, water from the Flint River that happened to be more corrosive, and therefore it uh, leached lead into the water. And so it was a change in the water quality that made the difference. And changes like that have happened all over the country many times. And the basic problem is that we have a toxic metal in our water distribution uh, system. So, and, and this is something that's really troubling to us in, in public health. And if I may show the first slide, I, I will share with you why we are so worried about 
lead and children's brain development. The fact is that we as a species have the smartest, the most complicated brain in the animal kingdom. And because it is so complicated, the, the process of developing it is extremely complex and at the same time vulnerable. And the point is then, if you're exposed to toxic elements like lead during that period, then things can go wrong and you only get one chance to develop a brain. So you stuck with that the rest of your life. And so the changes are permanent and it is particularly in early childhood and fetal development that you're sensitive. So when something like this happens in Flint, it means that there is going to be permanent effects that are going to last for a very long time. And I understand that the level at which there's concern has dropped considerably over the years as more research has been done. It's down to basically no safe level. That, that's true because in the beginning we didn't really have children with low lead exposures to, con to, to compare with. So as we took lead out of gasoline and we started to control uh, canned food, et cetera, et cetera, then we, uh, the lead exposures dropped and suddenly we realized that what we thought was safe was indeed not safe. So, I mean, you can think about all of the IQ points that uh, Americans have lost in the past simply because we were um, ignorant. And of course, it also has effects on adults. Uh, maybe we'll get a little bit to that later, different sorts of effects. Um, I think we want to turn now to a video. Uh, this is uh, about the Flint crisis. It's been uh, declared a federal emergency, as you know. This is a video by Ben Han Hancock and Andrew McLean, and it's being used with permission from MLive. I never would have thought I'd be drinking contaminated water surrounded by the Great Lakes. Flint, Michigan is having a water crisis. Currently, the National Guard and Red Cross are handing out bottled water and filters to residents. On January 16th, President Obama declared a federal emergency in Flint, freeing up $5 million in federal aid. According to the EPA, the maximum safe level of lead in drinking water is zero parts per billion. Five is the threshold for concern. Flint water has been regularly tested above 100 ppb by a Virginia Tech research team. And in at least one home, the team measured above 13,000. 5,000 is considered toxic waste by the agency. That water is much more corrosive, and that corrosivity is causing the lead to leach out of lead service lines, galvanized pipe, and copper lines that use lead solder. So that question to you. Um, Jeffrey, how did we get here? How did this happen? This is entirely preventable. This is, um, this is just negligence at an astounding degree because we have known for decades, um, even within you know, the, the kind of uh, community of people who are going to maybe not pay as much attention to public health problems, that we had a real problem with lead. There are many places in this country where people have had very high lead levels for a long time. And we know now, and we knew 20 and 30 and 40 years ago, that lead was bad for you. But we have not stepped up to the plate to replace the lead, get rid of the lead in, in our water supply, the same way that we have in terms of lead paint and in gasoline and things like that. So in, in many ways, this is a failure of political will. This has been a hidden problem. This has been something, lead is not something you taste. It's not something that 
turns you green or blue or purple or gives you spots or things like that. It just makes your kids a little less smart than they should be and gives you hypertension and does things like that. If you could key up the slide, please, of the health effects. Um, and so the, the issues around this um, have been well known for a long time. We have different degrees of certainty about some of this, but again, this is a failure of political will that exists in terms of dealing with this. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, uh, somewhat facetiously, I say to people, if Al-Qaeda put a poison in our water that would make our kids less smart and do this to us, we'd all be all over it. But instead, we tolerate this kind of intolerable situation where we have low-level, chronic, bad stuff happening. One of the things I'd like to point out is that a lot of the neurocognitive effects of lead, in terms of decreasing how smart you are, um, are things that, that likely happen with very low exposures. It's not like you need a very high exposure to have this, although, as you have just seen, people in, in Flint were getting very toxic levels in terms of their water uh, that could lead to all sorts of problems. When I was in my training as a pediatrician, I took care of many children who had seizures from this. And you know, you, we would give them really nasty chemicals to suck the lead out of them, but to be honest, it didn't do a good job because it's put in their bones for their lives. This stuff, when it gets into you, is with you forever. This is not something where you get this exposure and then it washes out. It's with you forever. Now, lots of, lots of cities have had this problem. The most dramatic example over the last, say, 20 years has been in Washington, D.C., where, again, there was a change in the water supply in terms of the way that it was treated. It became more corrosive. People uh, were exposed to very high levels of lead in the, in the households in specific neighborhoods in Washington, D.C., and uh, this was essentially covered up by the people who were uh, taking care of the water supply there. Um, I believe that allegations of something along this line have also been made in Flint. Um, I just want to point out that you know, lead is in some ways the one, the one contaminant that we test for. We don't test for many other contaminants. So it, we can use this as the canary in the coal mine, or we can use this as the tip of the iceberg if we want to. But there are other problems that with our water supply in terms of uh, other chemicals that can affect cognition as well. But I, I really must say, I think we know enough about lead to take care of it. We know enough about what the problems are, and this is a big burden on the population. It's silly not to be taking care of this, if not stupid. <laughs> you are all being so succinct so far that, uh, Mark, you can, you can run for a while if you want, although it would be great. It would actually, uh, I, I would say stick with your five minutes, and uh, we'll have more time for questions at the end. But, so we've heard about risks associated with lead in the water. You've looked at health risks associated with other contaminants, including things in our air, pesticides. What have you found? Sure, sure. So let me start first with lead still, just to point out that, you know, I've done work on lead, lots of people have done work on lead, Philippe has done some of the earliest work on lead, and we know a tremendous amount about the health effects of lead, and, and obviously effects on children are particularly important. We know things about behavioral effects, cognitive effects. Uh, I've done work on the other end of the spectrum, so showing associations with neurodegenerative diseases, Parkinson's disease, and as was pointed out by Jeff, you know, if you're, if you're exposed to lead at almost any point in your life, it largely gets deposited in your bones. It not only stays there, but bones turn over slowly, so as you age and at times when bone turns over, it can come back out again to haunt you all over again later in life. And uh, So we know a tremendous amount about it, and that's unfortunately, I guess, in part why this is such an issue is that it's lead, and we know about it, we regulate it, we have levels that we try to keep under and things of that sort. But there's all sorts of other stuff out there 
that is potentially damaging to humans, children, and adults. Um, you know, we're concerned about plasticizers, phthalates, uh, BPA in bottles, uh, perfluoralkyl compounds that are uh, more recently in the news, pesticides, all of these things are certainly have the potential to be toxic and a lot of people are looking at them, myself included for some of them, of health effects of exposure to these things, but we don't know nearly as much as we know about lead, so we're kind of behind the eight ball here. Um, but, uh, you know, even take something like pesticides where I've done some work on effects on mental health, anxiety, effects on um, uh, Parkinson's disease, and in fact, many others have done that as well. There, there's a lot of people who have worked on pesticides and Parkinson's disease, and there is a lot of evidence that pesticides are related to the development of Parkinson's disease. But pesticides is a huge group, right? So there are many things in there, many different kinds of pesticides, from the Rachel Carson days of DDT, and, and organic chlorines that stick around forever to now uh, more rapidly degrading ones like organophosphates but may, that may still have health problems. And we know, I mean, the evidence is very robust that pesticides are related to Parkinson's, but it is very hard to say which pesticide. If there is one, it may be many of them, right? And so that's a fundamental problem we face in these health studies is that we are not exposed to one thing. We're exposed to lots of things, and that's an extremely difficult uh, issue to address from a scientific perspective, and it makes it hard when it comes to, you know, setting regulations. We, we tend to look at things one at a time, but unfortunately we kind of have to do that. Um, but all, all of these other things uh, have, to be, uh, have to be considered. And one of the issues with many of them, so another thing that I look at is air pollution, and recently we've done work looking at effects of air pollution, exposure to the mother during pregnancy, and risk of autism in her child. And there's a growing body of literature now suggesting that that is happening. Um, but we don't think that air pollution, you know, per se, is the absolute, you know, the one thing that's doing it. Because it's affecting the mother, my suspicions are it's in engaging processes in the mother that are harmful to the fetus. But those are processes that can be affected by lead, by many other types of contaminants. So we look at these ones that we can measure well and that we know a lot about, and they tell us something's going on. But I think they're sort of canaries in the coal mine for the other stuff that we just can't g get a grasp on as well because of their properties. And we haven't, don't have the body of evidence behind it to say, yes, something is going on there. But Certainly my suspicion is, for many of them, something is going on. And, you know, if we sort of ignore all the other stuff, and, and in this country we tend to assume something is uh, innocent until proven guilty, but to my mind that's sort of a dangerous game of Russian roulette with chemicals that I wouldn't want to play if I didn't have to. Thanks very much. Okay, we'll continue on down the end of the table, off the end of the table, toward the corner of the room to Kimberly coming to us from... Actually, I, not, I guess it's Virginia, not D.C., just outside D.C. It's, it's North Carolina, but that's oh, close. Oh, forgive me. Forgive me. <laughs> you guys in the NIH, and I, you're all over the place, so forgive yes, me. Yes, we are. Um, yes. So we, we, we've heard how children in, in particular are affected by toxic exposures. You direct the, children's, the Center for Children's Environmental Health and Disease Prevention Research. Tell us what those centers do. Sure. So in 1996, there was an executive order from President Clinton to really look and protect our children from these environmental threats. So these centers, along with NIEHS and EPA, we collaborated in 1999 to launch the first center program. It included community-based research, intervention programs, where we were out across 10 sites looking at what are the issues that are most concerned for those specific communities. So. We weren't in everybody's community and backyard, but we really did assess and take a preliminary 
um, look at what were the things that were affecting communities, what they were concerned with, and we did something about it. Now, this program has grown in the past 17 years to be over uh, 22 centers funded, 14 currently. And lead, I have to say, hasn't been, luckily, a big issue for most of the centers, but besides Bruce Landfairs in Cincinnati. And what we've learned from these is kind of goes back to what Mark was talking about. It is a soup. You know, the children are vulnerable. They're developing pound per pound. They eat more, drink more, breathe more. Their organ systems are developing. So we look at that as the most vulnerable of our population, plus we are their voice. They don't have a voice for us. So these centers have really worked proactively to not only address the issues that the research community have, but also what the community are concerned with. And um, They've learned a lot. They've learned a lot that it's not one chemical. They've tried to develop uh, programs and protocols and methods to look at more than one chemical. Um, they've been at the forefront um, taking the translation of their research through the Community Outreach Translation course back to the community and to the policymakers and to the stakeholders to communicate their findings. And they've had some big impact not only in research, but um, also in, in regulatory as EPA is one of our partners. And we work um, co collaboratively with EPA and EPA and NIH scientists to really um, look at what these issues are. But Mark is absolutely right. It's, it's not one chemical. We're dealing with pesticides, consumer products. Uh, lead being a source from water has not been um, uh, looked at specifically in our centers. Uh, they do some screening and also get some feedback from those public health departments. And, and that's where we are today. So um, this is not surprising for us. Um, it's, uh, um, but the agencies are working collectively to address the problem. Uh, it, it may seem that um, uh, a little late but um, we're doing the best we can. I know DHHS is, is on the ground and, and uh, working with the communities. EPA is on the ground and leading the federal science response. We're part of the action plan and the science advisors and um, working with our centers and uh, our research scientists like Philippe and Mark who are uh, part of our centers program as well, um, developing um, messaging even for other communities that are worried about these these uh, low-level lead that could be in their water as well. Okay, thanks very much, Kim. I, we're actually already ready to move on to the discussion part of the panel, which I think is going to be the most interesting. Get um, some dialogue going between everybody up here. Before we move to the audience, we're going to have plenty of time for that as well. This has been a production of the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the forum.